Good morning, everyone. That is the purpose for, for us coming here, isn't it? To turn our eyes to Christ, to see Him as our glory, to see Him as our, our crown, our treasure. He is everything to us because He is God, the Son of God, who came to give His life so that we may have life through Him and in Him. And that's exactly what our topic has been as we've been going through Colossians here as a a bird's eye view, maybe certainly not a verse by verse approach due to time, but focusing in on the Christological Christological passages of, of Paul set up against the false teaching of his day in Colossae to ground, to root those believers in Christ, that he would be their, their treasure. And as we have been talking about beholding Christ to bring our attention and focus to the person and work of Christ, which really does affect how we live how we grow, and how we endure. Our purpose going through this, this letter in this way has been that Christ would be our central focus as a church, as a covenant community, that central focus of affection, heart and mind, that his preeminence, which we talked about last week, or two weeks ago, excuse me, would manifest itself in how we live in this world against the false philosophies that are pulling us away from the truth, also pulling us away from the gospel, pulling us away from Christ. So we have talked about 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we all with unveiled face now in Christ are beholding the glory of the Lord. And as we do that, Paul says we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit working His work of transformation in us and through us as we gaze on Christ. So that we hold fast, so that we stand firm, so that we love Christ, so that we live for Him, so that we can be effective witnesses, so that we can make disciples. Week one, if you remember, we started off in chapter one. We looked at Paul's thanksgiving, Paul and Timothy's really thanksgiving and his prayer rooted in the gospel, if you remember, the word of truth, the gospel in verse five of of chapter one. They heard it, they received it, and Paul saw that impact of the gospel in their life, and he gave thanksgiving for that work of bearing fruit, the gospel bearing fruit and increasing And then he also prayed for that same thing, that that gospel bearing fruit and increasing in them and, in fact, in the whole world would continue on in that path by, of course, the power of Christ. The second week, we moved into a very high Christological passage, maybe one of the highest in in the Word of God, that is chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, the supremacy of Christ, drawing our gaze to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the one who holds the highest position, the highest prominence, the highest preeminence as creator and sustainer. Everything was made by him, for him, through him. He is the eternal one, the head of the church, the risen one, the fullness of God, and the one who makes peace by the blood 
of the cross. So universal supremacy matches the universal message, the universal scope of the gospel. The question that I posed two weeks ago was, how will we continue on in the faith? How will we remain stable, steadfast? How will we guard ourselves from the shifting of the, away from the hope of the gospel so that we won't become weary, give in, give up? For Paul and those believers in Colossae, he presented them Christ so that they would stand firm in that message that they heard and also that message that they received and that they could see the effects of that gospel. And he's calling them over and over through this letter of Colossians to behold Christ, to look at Christ, to gaze on Christ. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you haven't already, I'd ask you to open up to Colossians chapter 2. We'll be a little bit in chapter 1. Good, good, uh, good case that it's on the same page. Uh, maybe it's not, but we'll be looking a little bit at chapter end of chapter 1 and then into chapter 2. So before we do that and jump in here, let me pray and ask God to use his word here this morning for his purpose in all of our lives. Father, we thank you that we again can gather here as a covenant community, your church, the bride of Christ, as you sanctify us by your word here this morning. We are asking you to turn our eyes to Christ, turn our eyes to your word, that we may look in it, see in it wondrous things, even the mystery of Christ that we're going to talk about here in a bit, of what you've done, but who you are and how you now live in us. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would accomplish the very purpose that you've set out for each one of us here today, but also as a body, as we come to your word together. Give us eyes, give us ears, change us by the power of the gospel here this morning. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So just real quickly again, the false teaching in Colossae, there were false ideologies, myths, and tales. We've talked a little bit about this. An empty philosophy is what Paul calls it, rules and regulations, which he's going to address here a little bit in chapter 2, basically saying Christ is not enough, when in fact Paul says he is all, and in all, he is in fact enough. So they would have special days searching for secret knowledge, worship of angels and other emanations. This was a syncretism of different beliefs, different ideologies and philosophies, and in fact, always is there a danger for the church. We've talked about that. We've presented that. So the centrality and sufficiency of Christ fades away when we are captivated by the passions of the flesh, the ideologies of the world, the philosophies of the world. The centrality and sufficiency of Christ fades away when the world captivates us, when philosophies of the world captivate us, when our own passions of the flesh captivate us and and draw us away from. So we are not without dangers, of course, today. Certainly, culture, we could talk about that, but also this movement, this shift of what's called progressive, air quotes, Christianity. Uh, Evangelical churches, in fact, on this path, and they don't even know it. 
moving away from the authority of Scripture, moving away from its inherent inerrancy, moving away from the gospel, going along with the culture so that we can remain relevant. Uh, let's avoid getting canceled. Let's attract more people. And the only way to do that is to lower the bar, lower the gospel, because the gospel is offensive. And so we avoid talking about that. Not we, but the broader scale of evangelical churches are on this path of progressive Christianity, and they they probably don't even realize that. It's instead, let's focus on, uh, let's not focus on sound doctrine or theology. Those Those are big words for people. They don't want to hear that. Let's just talk about God's love, and that's without definition, coming to what is God's love, and we just want to get along. Everybody believes in the same thing, same God anyway, so we just move, we change with the culture. There's always that danger. I want to get back into Paul's ministry here and kind of pick this up in in verse 24 of of chapter 1 to show a flow here of Paul's argument, Uh, and I'm going to do that with... Oops. Sorry. We're showing Paul's, uh, this outline of Paul's stewardship, Paul's concern, and, and Paul's solution. His stewardship that he is pouring himself out for the church, preaching Christ, to present the church mature, complete in Christ. His concern, of course, is the empty philosophy. Deceiving and hypnotizing the church, captivating the church with this secret knowledge, this uh, unknown knowledge that will help them in their growth or help them in their, their salvation. And then Paul's solution is to bring it back to Christ, captivating the church with the sufficiency of Christ. And as we go through these three areas of the outline, I'm going to make two propositions here for us living in community, covenant community. First of all, and this was true for them, that we are always in danger of being ensnared and captivated by deceptions and lies. I've already mentioned this a little bit in our flesh, in the world, in the schemes of the enemy. We are always in danger of being ensnared or captivated by deceptions, by lies that present themselves in shiny new things, new doctrines, new twists on on old doctrines, because it's shiny, and it's new, and it lures us in because it's fresh and exciting. We're always in danger of being ensnared or captivated by these deceptions and lies that are presented to us as great things, good things, shiny things, and we want those things. But the second proposition is that we must continue as a, as a community, as a covenant community, we must continue to strive together to be captivated by Christ and Him alone. That he, that we would, by grace and through faith, abide in Him, stand firm in Him, worship Him, and make Him known. This is a constant striving for the bride of Christ. And here, as, as Paul comes to talk about his ministry to the church at the end of, of chapter 1, he's, he's going to talk about his stewardship being from God, Uh, to preach Christ 
even in suffering, even in toil, even in hard work for the maturity of the church, to stand in the midst of the false teaching, this empty philosophy, and by knowing the great mystery of the riches of Christ, Christ in you, which will get there, your hope of glory. So let's look at Paul's stewardship, first of all, and let me just read verses 24. I'm going to read through chapter 2, verse 5. There's, I know, a chapter break, but I think it's the same topic, and he's flowing right through this talking about his ministry, mixing it with his concern, and then also bringing in his solution a bit. And we're going to walk through those three areas in this outline. First of all here, verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Then chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and a knowledge of God's mystery. Again, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. We certainly cannot go into every detail here. We're going to try to give an overview of of Paul's flow here of his stewardship, his, his concern, and his solution, which will end up going beyond verse 5 of chapter 2 as well. But here, he starts off by saying that he, in his stewardship, he is rejoicing in his suffering because it's for the sake of the body, for Christ's body, that is, the church. And then he makes a very peculiar statement, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Paul informs them that on behalf of the body of Christ, the church, he is filling up or completing in his physical body, in his physical suffering, what is lacking in respect to Christ's affliction. Now, Paul is not saying that Christ's afflictions were incomplete, that it had to be done more, that something was left undone. It seems instead that Paul is placing his ministry in this interpretive framework of suffering for the sake of the gospel as an extension, as an extension of Jesus' own purpose of coming to be afflicted. Uh, Paul's letters make very clear that he did not regard Jesus' redemptive suffering inadequate, but he regards our afflictions in gospel ministry as ongoing offerings 
for the sake of the church. He says that in, um, in Timothy where he says, I became a minister according to stewardship from God. Uh, no, that's, this is the next verse. I became a minister according to stewardship from God given to me for you, the church. But Paul talks about other places where he is afflicted for the very purpose of Christ and for the very purpose of being poured out. It's first Timothy, Second Timothy 4, 6. Uh, he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. So here in verse 25, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, given by God for you, the church. He did not perceive his apostolic office as uh, standing on some personal entitlement. Uh, this was a divine grace, a sacred trust, not sought by himself, but given as a gift, given by grace, given by Christ himself for the sake of the church. So Paul regards his suffering, uh, regards himself as this servant of the gospel for Christ's church, for his sake. And as I made a case a month or so ago, as we were walking through Isaiah's suffering servant, I believe Paul saw in the suffering servant a way to apply that to himself and a grid for his life and ministry. That serving God will, will, will come with suffering, just as it did for Christ. So the aim of his stewardship here, several different verses, in verse 25, to make the word of God fully known. In particular, he goes on, the mystery, verse 26, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Next verse, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, the nations, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, and listen, listen to what he says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He goes on, we're going to talk about that in a bit. He goes on to verse 28, he says, it's him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. This is the aim of his stewardship, is to reveal this mystery, to make the word of God fully known to proclaim, to warn, to teach, verse 28, that we may present everyone mature in Christ, complete, full. So here we see Paul toiling. All the energy that God is working in him and through him, he is pouring himself out for the body of Christ to preach, to protect, to encourage so that Christ's bride would stand and be ready and be pure how? By the understanding of this mystery that has been revealed. Certainly, this is a jab. A jab at the false teachers because they had some secret mystery, secret knowledge that they were pursuing and, and trying to get other people to come on board that we have to look for something outside of God's revelation. In fact, outside of the revelation of Christ himself. He wasn't quite enough because they lowered him from his position of deity. So Paul's stewardship, the, the aim of his stewardship, and then if we move into the concern of Paul, I want to just show this structure that's in here. It's a uh, literary device called the uh, a chasm, a chiastic structure. Beginning here in, in chapter 2, what's interesting to me is that he shows every element here. He shows his stewardship, his concern, and his solution in a literary device of 
kind of moving to the X that you see there in that outline, talking about his stewardship on the top, the A, and then his stewardship on the bottom, the A2. And then also in the middle here, Paul's concern in, in verse 2. That's the B up there on that outline. And then his concern is repeated again underneath the center, the focus. And this is the whole purpose of this structure is to show what is central, what is the focal point of his um, argument or paragraph or discussion. So Paul talks about his labor of love for the church, and then he's going to talk about his concern. Then he's going to talk about the solution is Christ, treasure of all wisdom and all knowledge. And he's going to work his way out of that discussion and talk again about his concern and then his labor of love for the church. Watch how this works. If I read again verse 1 in chapter 2, this is his stewardship. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. This is his stewardship. He is poured out for this very reason. It's a toil. It's a struggle. His concern, he moves to verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Moving in this direction towards the focal point. This mystery is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And as he works his way back out of this, I say this in order that no one may delude you. This is his concern again. That no one may delude you with plausible arguments, with empty philosophies. And then he comes all the way back out to this labor of love. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He is showing his intense desire, his concern, his toiling, his contending for the church that they would find these riches of the mystery of Christ. So I just want to mention quickly these four things in in the concerns, uh, fourfold purpose that he has in mind as we talk more about his concern. First of all is that their hearts may be encouraged. Uh, And as we go through these four things, I I really do want you to think about covenant community. I want want you to think about the church. Uh, You could even anticipate uh, some relationships that you maybe already have, but maybe relationships that you will be building in this body, in this church, and even anticipating the fall when we bring in life groups, when we launch life groups again. This is a pattern that Paul is talking about the body of Christ, his concern for them as he goes through these four things, that their hearts may be encouraged. We can quickly think and apply this to our own relationships in this covenant community, this church, our body, or this family of God. This is what we should be doing with one another as we strive to keep our hearts fixed on Christ. So the first thing is that their hearts may be encouraged, and this is in verse 2 of chapter 2. The verb encourage suggests more than just comfort. Uh, It's to be more accurate, a sense of strengthening, of providing a ballast to weather the onslaught from the false teachers, Uh, the struggles that are going to come as we surrender our life to Christ. 
He talks about this in Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 3. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to do what? To establish and exhort you in the faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. That's First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. And then in Romans, he uses the same word as he's longing to see the, this church. I long to see you in chapter 1, verse 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we, we actually may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Ballast so that we can weather the storm. Strengthening one another with the onslaught that is coming at us, we need to be in community. The second thing that he mentions here is that they are knit together in love. Uh, This term love is describing commitment, a rugged commitment in presence, in supporting one another, in mutual direction of this development towards Christ's likeness. He is desiring that they commit to one another as they grow in Christ. He follows that up with some very particulars, the third and fourth element of this uh, concern that he has, that they will have the full riches of complete understanding and that they have the knowledge of the mystery of God. Again, which is Christ, verses 2 and 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Another uh, contrary statement towards those false teachers, of course. If we move from his stewardship, his care, move into the solution, Paul is narrowing in now on their gaze on Christ, to behold Christ, and he will bring back this high Christological text and passages talking about the sufficiency of Christ. Again, very contrary uh, to being being taken captive by empty philosophy, myths, and ideas, and, and other shiny new things, this empty deceit that was before them, all according to human tradition, all according to these elemental spirits of the world, all opposed to Christ, Paul comes back and says in verse 9 of chapter 2, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There is no fullness in philosophy. There is no fullness or completeness in reasoning of, of man, human reasoning. You can only find your fullness in Christ. The opposite of that is, of course, apart from Christ, emptiness. Emptiness. Again, opposing false teachers who are saying that Christ is not fully God. Bodily, he he cannot be. But here Paul's saying, no, he's fully God, fully man, fully full deity dwelling bodily in Christ. So the fullness of Christ appears multiple times in Colossians. We've already read some of these, holds great significance, of course, theologically, but I I believe even for practicality for life here, uh, Christ's divine fullness. If we go back to chapter 1, Paul talks about that in chapter 1, verse 19, declaring all the fullness of God dwells in Christ, again, highlighting his his deity, this completeness of Christ. And he's emphasizing throughout this letter Christ's divine nature, his authority, his sufficiency. And this is all in the name of protecting 
the church, correcting the church, affirming the sufficiency of Christ alone for salvation, but also for spiritual growth. And Paul's emphasis is quite heavy, if we were to look at this in in chapter 2 here, of the believer's participation in that fullness. In fact, this could be a theological uh, topic, uh, doctrine of salvation that you could study uh, for a lifetime, and that is the union of Christ, union in Christ, union with Christ of the believers. It's a, a, a reality that we've been made complete with the fullness of Christ, whether we feel it or not. Through faith and our union with Christ, we share in this fullness of Christ. Everything that we need for salvation, for spiritual growth, for this Christian life is found in Christ. This impacts our identity, but also our faith and our walk of faith. Paul talks about this in Ephesians as he opens the letter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense. He has blessed us, where? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Talking about our union with Christ, all the spiritual blessings come through that union with Christ. So Christ alone exclusively is sufficient for salvation. There is no other, no other name under heaven by which we can be saved, but Christ alone exclusively is also sufficient for all of our spiritual needs. There are no alternatives, no additives, no Christ and something else, no, no Christ plus something else. There is no, well, I just need to unlock the secret. Maybe if I just get the latest book that talks about 10 steps to fill in the blank. Seven keys to fill in the blank. It won't come by seeking worldly wisdom or worldly solutions. When we talk about our life or our ministry to others, this ministry of this church, our growth, it's not going to come through self-help, shortcuts, get godly quickly through these keys and steps. It's not going to come through good works. It's not going to come through merits, attempting to earn God's favor. And it won't come through material pursuits, uh, focusing on prosperity and, and success. And, and actually equating success and prosperity with God's blessing. That's a false gospel. Blessings come in Christ, and we've already received in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So if we watch his thread, uh, I'm going to start reading some, some of these passages talking about this union with Christ from just verse 19 of chapter 1 through to verse 15 of chapter 2. And this goes on, this goes on in the letter, but Paul's stewardship is to make known this mystery revealed in Christ. And he's going to talk about this. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In verses 26 and 27, as he's making this known, the riches of the glory of this mystery is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. He repeats, again, his aim and his stewardship that the church would, in verse 2 of chapter 2, reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of this mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom 
and knowledge. In verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In verse 10, and you have been filled in him. What is the mystery? The glory of this mystery, Christ in you. You have been filled in him. He goes on, verse 11. In him you have been circumcised by Christ, circumcision of the heart. What we were in Adam has been put off, destroyed by Christ. Verse 12, we are buried with him in baptism. We are raised with him through faith. Once dead in our trespasses in verse 13, now made alive together with him. And he's going to go on, verse 13, 15, forgiven. This record of debt has been canceled. We're going to talk about that next, next week. The disarming of these demonic rulers and authorities by Christ, triumph over them in him. So Paul's stewardship is poured out for the church to proclaim Christ. His concern, of course, is that these worldly philosophies would captivate the church. His solution is to present to them the sufficiency of Christ and the believer's union with Christ. We are intimately identified, joined together with Christ and He with us. With Christ, we share a common spiritual life such that the Apostle Paul could say that our life is hidden with Christ in God. He's going to do that in chapter 3, verse 3. He'll go on in chapter 3 of Colossians that Christ is himself our life. And many of you know what he says in Galatians that it's actually Christ who is living in him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because of this union with Christ, believers have been crucified with him, died with him, buried with him, risen with him, And in fact, Ephesians will talk about seated in the heavenlies as he was exalted and glorified. It's as if we are already enthroned with Christ. Our union with Christ. He is thus the mediator of all the benefits of salvation, for God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Uh, Many theologians from the past, modern, contemporary, say this is the central truth. John Owen says the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation is the union that we have with Christ. This is the Spirit applying salvation by uniting us with Christ, but also a oneness, a bond, an established relationship between Christ and his people. Yes, there's communion, there's fellowship, but that's, that's different Uh, That communion or that fellowship, that's the active exercise and enjoyment of the graces of our union with Christ, a living fellowship of an actual union joined together with Christ in Christ, Christ in us. Paul uses this expression uh, over 160 times, in him, with him, in Christ, together with him, He's talking about, of course, our identity, but also a sharing, a a connectedness with the life and work of Christ. He was crucified, 
we were crucified. He died, we died. He was raised, we are raised. He ascended into heaven, we are seated there also with him. Thomas Boston, Puritan, said, All who are united to Christ bring forth the fruit-bearing obedience and true holiness that can only be found in Christ, through Christ, by faith in him, that he is in us and we are in him. It's a shared life. Spurgeon once prayed, Lord Jesus, we are one with thee. We have a living, loving lasting union with thee. A living, loving, lasting union with thee. All the benefits of grace lie prepared and ready for the church in the person of Christ. Calvin says this is the highest importance, union with Christ. Being joined in what uh, is the whole point of gospel of the gospel being joined with Christ the whole design of the gospel that Christ may become ours and that we may be engrafted into his body there are many implications of this that we certainly do not have time uh, to share and, and talk about in in this uh, time together but we are rooted and built up in Christ we have fullness in Christ. This is just walking again through, through Paul's chapter 2. Rooted and built up in Christ, verse 7. United with Christ, and we derive our spiritual nourishment, our growth and stability through him. Rooted and built up in Christ. In verses 9 and 10, he talks about fullness in Christ. Complete, lacking nothing. Highlighting the sufficiency of Christ, but also the fact that believers find their ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in Him, through Him. In this union that we have, this connectedness, as we were adopted, regenerated, adopted, brought into Christ. We were buried and and raised with Christ, verses 11 and 12. Talking about the circumcision of the heart, a separation from the power of sin, transformation through, again, this union with Christ. We have now been made alive in Christ, buried, raised, made alive in Christ. Colossians 2.6, which I intentionally brushed over a little bit, really nails this for us. Colossians 2.6, therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So walk in Him. Union with Christ. Our connectedness to His life, to His work, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is what we need to be talking about. As a community, as a covenant community of family in this church, how do we encourage one another? How do we pray for one another? How do we talk and discuss this with one another? Christ's sufficiency. Christ in us. It's not you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. The life we now live is by faith in the Son of God. If we come back to those concerns that Paul had for this church, 
He talks about again that their hearts may be encouraged, ballast. This is where the ballast is. It's in Christ. It's in the truth that Christ is in you, is in us. We are in Him. You are in Christ. Is that we would be knit together in love, in this community, in this family of God, that we would be knit together in love, a rugged commitment to one another that we would grow and live for Christ and make Christ known. As the onslaught is coming at us, we need to encourage one another. We need to be knit together in love. We also need to understand the riches of this mystery, that Christ is sufficient, that Christ in us is our sufficiency. We don't need to go looking anywhere else. We don't need to go looking at those shiny lures that are being plopped down in the water before us. These new, fun, fancy doctrines that make you feel good, they're distractions. They're empty. They're deceitful lies, in fact. As a covenant community, as a family of God, we need to come together, encourage each other with these things, be knit together in love, be committed to one another, understand these riches of the mystery that God has revealed to us, has revealed to the saints, and that is Christ. Full wisdom, complete treasure for us, but Christ in us. Faith is a God-given gift that allows you to take hold of God's having taken hold of you. If you're in Christ, this is now the defining truth of who you are and how you live. Your story, your life, becomes enfolded into another's story and life. Christ lives in us. And it's now Christ who lives this life that we have, our, our union with Christ flows over, of course, into our, our fellowship and our communion with Christ. And as we gaze at him, as we behold Christ, as we do that in community, in the body of Christ, in this family, we do that for this very purpose that we would find all sufficiency in Christ, that we would walk with one another in this way, building each other up, loving one another, making the name of Christ known, that we would stand firm in the truth of God's Word, in the truth of who Christ is, in the truth of what Christ has done, in the truth that we have a union with Him, a connectedness with Him, and it's His life that lives in us. We need to throw off ourselves. Stop living our life based on our own strength and our own abilities that we think we have. It's through Christ. It's in Him. Him living in us and through us. Christ in us. As we go to one last song, we're going to sing Great is Your Faithfulness. There's one line, it's at the end, blessings all mine with 10,000 besides. The blessings we have are already ours in Christ. He has already blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. 
every spiritual blessing. Blessings all mine with 10,000 besides. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection. I thank you for this mystery that we have been joined by the Holy Spirit to you, to your life, to your death, to your resurrection, even to your exaltation as we are said to be enthroned, seated there with you. It's a not yet, of course, but it's already a reality according to your word. We are connected to you. We have been joined together by the Spirit through our regeneration. And it's now you who lives in us. We, we, by faith, live in the Son of God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that together as a community, not individually here. Certainly, we talk enough about individually um, our life in Christ, but as a community May you help us to do that, that we'd be encouraging one another, that we would be knit together in love, that we would seek to understand these riches uh, of this mystery that you've revealed to us that is Christ, our treasure, our wisdom, the fullness of deity, but Christ in us. Thank you, Lord. May we continue to worship you here today as we lift up our eyes to Christ, our glory, and our prize as we adore you, as we behold you as our Savior, our Redeemer, and our very life. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.